Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, while you're finding your place, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you so much for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for uh, the beautiful weather, for the extra hour of sleep, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together here at church around your word and fellowship with one another and to uh, get into your word and to read it, study it, learn from it, Lord. And Lord, we just ask you that you guide and direct us this morning as we look into your word. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to uh, encourage us, to strengthen us, to convict us, Lord. And I just pray that you would uh, do the needed work in each life today. Be with those who are still on their way out, Lord. Be with those who are unable to be with us. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help this church to be a light and a witness wherever we go, that we would be good representatives of you, Lord, that we'd have opportunities to to share the gospel, to, to tell folks about you, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 20 is where we're at. And uh, last week we were maybe a little bit more academic, a little bit more more boring, maybe. Some of you are shaking your head, yes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we were looking last week at Paul's travels and how uh, they related to his writings because as he was going and ministering, he was also writing letters to other churches and he was... Uh, using those opportunities to shepherd at a distance, I guess we could say. And if we understand where Paul was at, what he was going through, what was going on with the relationship between the churches, between him and the churches, it helps us to understand as we're reading the scriptures, uh, understand the context and be able to better apply it to our lives. Because too often we look at the Bible as very disconnected and disjointed. Uh, we look at it as if each book and each epistle is a standalone and not realizing how they are related one to the other. And so we were talking about that. I won't go into all of that again today. But anyway, for me at least, it helps me to understand the connections and, and Paul's mindset and his attitude as he's dealing with these different things, such as, as he's writing to the Corinthian church and the things that's going on there as he's uh, writing to these, these different places. And uh, then we closed last week by looking at uh, Paul's visit to Troas. And whenever he came to Troas, he uh, spent a, a very short amount of time there. He spent seven days in Troas. And on the first day of the week, uh, the Lord's Day, he uh, met together with them in the evening time after they all gotten off work because at that time it was a work day. It was the first day of the week. And he met with them after they got off work and they spent time together in fellowship. They spent time around the Word of God preaching and teaching the Word of God. And there were many people gathered together. It was an upper room. Uh, there were many lights, it says, and it was warm. It's kind of warm in here this morning. But anyway, uh, it was warm. It was late. They were tired. And a man named Eutychus sat in the window, fell asleep, fell out of the window, and died. And so there's a, a memorable moment for Paul's last trip to Troas, right? And so anyway, in this passage, we saw how... They, uh, they emphasized the Word of God, how important the Word of God and fellowship was to them. They were willing, even after a long day of work, to come out to spend a long time in uncomfortable conditions just so that they could spend time together and they could spend time listening to the Word of God. Okay, And so that is an encouragement to us. That is an instruction to us, I guess, as we see their example. And then also we saw as Paul dealt with this uh, this issue of this boy falling out the window and dying, 
he calmed the people and just him being caring, being compassionate, being a loving shepherd over the people, right? He is calming the people. Uh, He is minimizing the miracle. And that is an important thing for us because today people who claim to do miracles emphasize them, not minimize them. They call attention to it and say, look at what I'm doing. And Paul just kind of writes it off like, yeah, this is nothing. His life is still in him. Let me just sit here for a minute. Let me just pray over him. Oh, look, he's okay. Right? He minimized the miracle. And in all of it, he showed his care and his concern for the people. He wasn't going to leave them on a sour note. He wasn't going to come preach, let one fall out the window and die, and say, oh, sorry about that, and leave. Right? And so it was Paul's uh, tenderness, his mercy toward them, as well as the Lord's, because Paul couldn't do it unless the Lord allowed him to. Right? And uh, so that lets us know a little bit of his relationship with the churches and with the people that he's dealing with. We're going to get into that even more so today as we see Paul talking to the Ephesian leaders. And um, uh, let me see. Okay. Uh, What I want to bring out before we read here is Paul is taking a quick trip. Okay. He is not, uh, he's not spending very much time in any one place. As we've been following his journeys, he would stay a few years in Ephesus, uh, spend a year in the regions of Macedonia, spend six months down in Corinth, and he would spend all this time in these different places. But now we found out back in verse number six that Paul left Philippi, which is in the region of Macedonia. He left that region right after, um, excuse me, right after the Passover. Okay, so that's verse six. He left right after the Passover, and his plan was to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. That's down in verse number 16. So he's traveling from Macedonia, from Philippi, over to uh, Jerusalem between Passover and Pentecost. And if you don't remember, that means he's got 50 days. Okay? There's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, between basically when the Lord was crucified and the Holy Spirit came, okay, 50 days. And so it takes him five days to get from uh, from Philippi to Troas, spend seven days in Troas, so there you've already got 12 days going out of 50. So that kind of sets the pace. We know that he's not able to stay anywhere very long. He has to get to Jerusalem. There's a few reasons he wants to get to Jerusalem. For one, he always has a burden for the people of Israel. He has a, a burden for the hometown. We've even been talking about that with the, the rugby and the the uh, all this stuff that was going on. You're cheering for the home team, right? And so Paul had a burden for the Jews. He wanted to see the Jews saved. Uh, not only that, but he was carrying this offering that was collected from the Gentile regions. He was carrying it back to Jerusalem for the, the poor widows, for the orphans, for the followers, all these different ones. And so he's carrying this offering back to the church that was at Jerusalem. And also, he wanted to be there specifically by Pentecost because that was the birthday of the church, right? That was the day that the Holy Spirit fell. That was the day that thousands were saved. That was the day that things really picked up and took off, right? And so that would have been an important day for Christendom. And so Paul's like, if I could be back there for that, be with the church at Jerusalem to to remember this time and all of this and to give them this offering, it's just like several things together. And so he put this this timeline in place. I want to be there for Pentecost. Okay. Now Pentecost wasn't necessarily an important event for the Jews, but it was for the Jewish Christians. Okay. And so Paul wanted to be there by then. 
And so that gives us an idea of what's going on, the pace that he's going to be setting, the reason why he's unwilling to uh, be bogged down in anywhere, that he's unwilling to be uh, slowed down anywhere. Okay? And so that brings us to verse number 13. And we're going to go through several different places it's hard to pronounce. Okay? So if anyone wants to say them, have at it. But I'll do my best. So um, Acts chapter 20, verse 13. It says, And we went before to ship and sailed unto uh, Asos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. And when he met with us at Asos, we took him in and came to Mytilene, and we sailed thence and came uh, the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Tregillium. And the next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus, because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And so as we look at this passage, uh, we see quick movement going on. And the way that they were traveling, I should have brought my map out. The way that they were traveling is they were going from place to place along the shore. They were uh, using small boats, and so these boats would just kind of go just slightly off of the coast and jump from place to place, taking people and cargo. Uh, in a way, it would operate almost like the bus system or the train system here. And so rather than having to walk from place to place, you get on the boat. It still takes time, but you get on the boat, and it gets you to the next place. And so it's just jumping around the coast like this getting from place to place. And so that's why it's naming all of these different uh, areas. And we see that sometimes they would hit two different cities in one day. Then they'd spend a night in a city. And they'd hit another city or two, and they'd spend another night. And that's what he's doing in this. And he's fighting against the urge to spend any amount of time in any of these places. Uh, Paul always has a burden for the lost. He has a burden to get the gospel out. And so I can imagine as he would get into these cities and he would look around, he would see the need and he would have to fight himself to not stay and try to uh, see people saved and try to start a church, right? Because that's like what, what Paul did. And he says, no, I've got things to do. He's got to keep on task, right? Not only that, we're going to find as we go further in this that Paul has uh, done his part in this region. He has a clear conscience, a clear mind, saying, I've done what God would have me to do here. He started up churches. He's uh, rooted and grounded them in the faith. He has established uh, leaders and pastors within the churches and given them a model so that they're able to go out from the major uh, hubs that he began to go out into the areas beyond. Okay, If Paul would spend his entire life going from a city to village to town to all over, he would never get out of one, one place, right? One area. And so he would come to kind of a central hub, uh, start a church, ground the people, and then they went out from that place. Okay. And so as he went by these places, he's like, one day there'll be a church here. And as Christianity is spreading, as the gospel goes forth, it'll reach these areas. But I've already done my part. I'm going onward because his burden was to go to Rome and eventually go to Spain and the regions beyond. Okay. And he does eventually go to Rome. There is speculation whether he ever goes to the regions beyond. There are uh, maybe some evidences and beliefs that he made it to Spain and maybe even up to the British Isles. Okay, Depends on if he had one imprisonment or two. I believe he had two. He was released for a season, went to Spain, maybe to the British Isles, got rearrested, back to Rome, 
and kill him. Okay. And one reason why I believe that he uh, had that release and he had that further um, that further ministry is because in Second Timothy he says, "I have finished my course." He made it very clear that his goal and uh, his desire was to go in those regions. And in Second Timothy, he basically says, "Mission accomplished. I've done all I set out to do." Okay. And so I think most likely he did. But we can't say it dogmatically. We can't be for sure. Okay? Yeah. Okay, so I better get on into our passage and what we're looking at. Uh, in verse 13, there's something interesting I want to point out. Uh, as all of his entourage, as his traveling companions, are on the boat and traveling from um, Troas to Asos, it's just a very small gap in between. It would have been probably 15 kilometers, something like that. Not very far between these cities. And most of the people got on the boat and sailed from one place to the other. But it says that Paul was minded to go, minding himself to go afoot. And so he says, you guys take the money, take the offering, all that, take all the supplies. You get on the boat, you go forward, and I'm going to travel lightly. I'm going to travel by myself on foot. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of insight into this. But what we do realize is that Paul was always busy. He was always surrounded by people, especially on this journey. Everywhere he's going, he has this group of people coming from Asia and from Macedonia and from uh, Corinth, all of these different people who are traveling with him. He has no time to himself, no time by himself. And what he's doing, we, we know the story, I believe most of us know, He's going to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. He's going to be imprisoned and ultimately sent to Rome. Okay? And he knows that things that are difficult lie ahead of him. He says, everywhere I go, it's testified that bonds and afflictions abide upon me. So he says, I know that this trip to Jerusalem is going to be to my harm, but he's going anyway. And in a way, this... This journey that he has, this time that he's minded to go afoot, I, I think it would compare very closely, very well, with Jesus' time in Gethsemane. Okay? Before Jesus went to the cross, he knew what was ahead. He knew what was just the next step along, and that there was going to be suffering, there was going to be problems. His arrest was just, uh, just around the corner, if you will. And he says, I need to spend some time alone with God to prepare myself spiritually, to be on the right page, to make sure that I am ready to do what God has for me to do. And so he spends this maybe 15, 20-kilometer walk between Troas and Asos, spending time by himself in prayer, in meditation, uh, thinking on the things of God, and getting his mind ready for what's about to happen. This is him getting his, making sure his heart's right with God, making sure that he is going in the right direction, doing the right thing. Because you've got to figure, if everywhere you go, people are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. Don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. In Paul's mind, you know, all men want to preserve their lives. Men don't want affliction. They don't want trial. And so Paul's flesh is saying, don't go. But his spirit is saying, you have to. And so there's, there's this wrestling going on within his own heart. And so it was important for him to get alone with God, to spend time with God, to prepare himself mentally, to prepare himself uh, spiritually for what was getting ready to happen. So it's not only that, but he's also getting ready to go to Ephesus 
for his final uh, his final time that he spends with. Uh, well, he's not going to go to Ephesus, but he's going to meet the leaders of Ephesus. And this is going to be the last time he sees them face to face. And so he's going to be imparting his his final instructions, his last words of wisdom, trying to root and ground the believers in Ephesus. And so he's also got to find out, what would the Lord have me to say? I've got a short amount of time. I've got this small window to minister to these people. I need my heart right with God to know what to preach, what to teach to these people before I leave them. And so Paul, even though it would be easier to go on the boat, right? Even though it would be easier to go on the boat, he said, it's more important for me that I separate myself from all the crowds and from all the things that's going on, and I walk this journey. And by the way, Paul is not as young as he once was, right? He's been beat, he's been battered. And so a 15 or 20 kilometer travel by himself wouldn't have been an easy journey, But he says, this is more important. This is needful for me to spend some time alone in meditation, spend some time alone with God. And the reason I'm stressing this is that each of us also need to make sure that there's times in our lives that we prioritize separating from all the hustle and bustle, from the busyness of the day, from all the noise, all the voices that are constantly bombarding us, and actually have some time alone with God or have some time away from the noise. Uh, something that's extremely difficult in the day and the age that we live in is just having quiet time. Just having time where we can be alone with God, be alone with our thoughts and whatnot. Sometimes that can be dangerous, by the way, being alone with your thoughts. But anyway, uh, it's so tempting to always have something going. If uh, there's nothing else going on, we'll have the television, we'll have music, we'll have podcasts, we'll have... There's always something filling up the noise. There's always people coming around. There's always things to do. And if we have downtime, we're putting something in the schedule, making sure there's something there to do, right? And we need to have some time apart. We need to have some time that's quiet. We need to have some time to evaluate ourselves, to evaluate our walk with God, and to focus on the things of God. And so Paul prioritized that, even if it was going to be maybe difficult for him, walking the journey instead of riding in the boat. And so Paul made sure to take time alone with God. Now, as we look at the, the following passages and following verses, 14, 15, and 16, Paul is just jumping from place to place to place to place. Okay? And so there's not a whole lot for us there to really break down or to get into. He is quickly going toward the next place. Okay? And so whenever we came down to uh, chapter, to verse number 16, when we came down to verse number 16, Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus. That means that he was bypassing Ephesus. He had determined not to go there. Okay? (coughs) Ephesus wasn't right on the coast. It was in from the coast just a little bit. And so if Paul stopped at Ephesus, he would have to go to Ephesus. He would have to return from Ephesus. That's going to take time. On top of that, he has a lot of people that he loves and respects in Ephesus, a lot of people who love him. If he goes to town, everyone's going to want to spend time with him. If he goes into town, everyone's going to say, stay a while, Paul. And so he's going to have a hard time pulling away from them. On top of that, he still has enemies in Ephesus. The last time he was there, there was a riot. And so there is a risk that he takes. If he goes to Ephesus, he might get embroiled in a riot. He might get embroiled in something that is going to delay him even further. So he has determined, if I'm going to Jerusalem by Pentecost, I can't go to Ephesus. But I can't just pass up Ephesus and forget about them and pretend I was never there. 
And so what he ends up deciding to do in verse 17, it says, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And so as he is traveling there, he sends ahead of himself and he has people to go to Ephesus that says, Paul is going to arrive at the port city of Miletus. Paul is going to be at this place. He wants you to come and meet there with him. So now they only have to come to him. He doesn't have to go both ways, right? That cuts down on that. And now it's just going to be the elders, the leaders of the church that are going to become meeting with him and not everyone. And he's not actually going to be in the city. And it's going to allow him to minister to them and leave. And so this is a strategic uh, strategic choice that he makes to get him to, to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so anyway, he sends for the elders. The elders come out. And let's go ahead and pick up reading in verse number 18. It says, And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you in all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and with temptations, and uh, which befell me by the lying in the weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both uh, to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things uh, that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying, Bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither account I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching in the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I am not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So we'll stop there for just a minute, and I want to review over these verses for just a few minutes and to draw out of them some application for us, okay? What Paul is doing, he has uh, invited the, the leaders, the elders, the pastors, the bishops, whatever you want to call them, uh, to come to him to this place, and he is sitting down with them and giving them final instruction. Okay, To get an idea of the time frame of what's going on, it says that he spent three years in Ephesus. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was instructing them, he was pouring his life into the Ephesian Christians. Okay? He left Ephesus, he went through the regions of Macedonia, spent about a year going through that area. Then he came down and spent uh, probably three to six months in Corinth, and now he's back there again, okay? So it's been about a year and a half since he last seen them, after he'd spent three years with them. And so he's getting updates, he's encouraging them, but he had spent a long time there, okay? So they come out to him, and what I said there a moment ago, uh, I'll just point this out before we jump into it. Uh, I said you could call them elders, you could call them uh, bishops, you call them pastors, whatever. In this particular passage, you find Paul using all three words to refer to the same people. And uh, I've always taught, I've always believed, and the Bible lines up with this, that a bishop, a pastor, an elder, same person, same office, okay? And Paul uses the same word to refer to all three of them. If you look in the original language, it's presbyteros, episkopos, that's elder and bishop, and then shepherd is a pastor, okay? 
And so he's referring in this passage uh, to the sheep that the Lord has made you overseer. That's a shepherd. The word overseer there is the word that's often trans, uh, translated as bishop. Okay. So just to make it clear here, God didn't uh, make a hierarchy. He didn't make a diversity of offices. These are different descriptions of the same thing. Okay. They are the ones who are elder. That would be uh, mature, experienced, and able to lead. They are the overseers. They're taking the oversight over the operations. They are the pastors that are feeding and leading the sheep. All the same thing, right? Now, there are multiple uh, elders that are coming out of Ephesus because there is either a large church that is there or a lot of smaller churches. But either way, the, the flocks require plenty of shepherds, okay? So the flocks require plenty of shepherds. And uh, this is what's going on. And Paul brings them all to himself. Uh, it doesn't tell us how many people there were. It doesn't tell how many churches there were in Ephesus or the size of any of them. But it does tell us that there were all these elders that came out to meet with Paul. Okay, So everybody on board with that? Everybody understand that? And so whenever you start trying to differentiate and say, well, we've got pastors and we've got bishops and we've got elders or pastors and elders and bishops, that's... That's not in the Bible. God says, I need people to feed and to lead my sheep. Okay? And need as many of them to feed and lead the sheep as it takes to feed and to lead the sheep. Not a hierarchy, not anything like that. It's just the care of the sheep determines how many shepherds. Is that, that pretty simple? It's amazing how Christianity has complicated this. Y'all on board with Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Christianity is complicated. There's a so-called Christianity in making a huge systems and all these different things. Whenever God says, my church is a flock. They are sheep. They need shepherds. They need someone to feed and to lead them. Okay? And so, how many sheep, I guess, that the shepherd can handle determines how many shepherds are needed. Mm -hmm. Okay? And then all of that comes under the head of the ultimate shepherd. We are under shepherds, right? Comes under the head of Christ, and he determines how to fit all of it together and how to manage his flocks. And that comes under God. Okay? So that was a little bit of a side note, but I just wanted to point that out from this passage. I believe it makes it fairly clear. Okay? He's referring to all, uh, referring to the same people by those three words. Okay? So anyway, um, let me get my my notes here in order. Okay. And so as, as we get into this, this is his final address to them. I, I know I've already said that. And he will later on write the epistle to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians that we've got. He will later write that to them. But that will be from Rome while he's in prison. Ephesians will be his first prison epistle. Okay? And so this is going to be the final time they see him face to face. The final time he has to speak to them, to preach to them, to encourage them, to help them. Anything else is going to be by a letter or messenger. And so he wants to make the most of this. And... Um, So he addresses the, the leaders of the churches here, and he is reminding them about how he led. If you 
we're paying attention as I read through this, he is pointing to himself as an example. He says, I have been with you for a long time. I have showed you, and my life was an open book. You saw how I led the people. I gave you an example to measure yourself by, to guide yourself by, one that you're able to relate to, to help you to stay on track, if you will. Okay? Uh, in First Peter 5, in verse 3, I know I've turned to this uh, passage in other times, but I think this is an important one. Uh, let me just stop and, and reiterate this here. Paul is talking to the leaders of the church, okay? Talking to the leadership. That is his audience right now, okay? And trying to teach them how to lead God's flock, how to be shepherds, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 3, Peter says, uh, well, let me go ahead with verse number 1. Verse 3 kind of brings it all together, but verse 1 the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Okay, this was Peter writing. All right. And he agrees with Paul. The very same things that Paul was saying, Peter is saying here. Now remember, Peter was a fisherman, right? But he learned to be a shepherd. Whenever Peter denied the Lord, and the Lord came to him to restore him and said, Peter, uh, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Remember that whole thing? What did he tell him whenever he says, Yea, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That was what he impressed upon him. That's what he continued to say over and over, feed my sheep. And so Peter has taken this to heart, and he is using this example in chapter number five, and he's exhorting the elders. He says, don't, uh, don't elevate yourself above the sheep. Don't use this to get rich. Don't use this to be powerful and to, to lord over the sheep, but serve them, feed them, lead them, Right? And be an example to them, an ensample to them. And so, what Paul is saying in first, or what Paul is saying here in Acts, is the same thing that Peter was saying: is I have been an example to you, I have showed you, right? In First Corinthians uh, chapter eleven and verse one, he says, "Be followers of me, even as I am a follower of Christ." Okay. And so Paul is not saying that we're idolizing men or lifting up men, but Paul is saying, I have lived the Christian life before you with a clear conscience, submitted to God, and I have done this so that you have an example, so that you can see what it's like to be a Christian, and specifically here, so that you can see what it's like to be a pastor of God's flock. Okay? And so this is what he's bringing together. So... Once again, he is saying that he is their example. The churches that were in Ephesus were going to need the right leadership if they were going to uh, continue to grow, continue to flourish in God, because there were going to be uh, false teachers, there were going to be false doctrine, there's going to be all kinds of things coming because Satan will not leave the church of God alone. He wants to deceive, he wants to mislead, he wants to destroy any way he can because the church is the vessel through which God has chosen to work. 
The church is the vessel through which God has intended for the gospel to go forth, for the the sheep to be fed, to be cared for, to be uh, watched over in health, right? This is what he's intended. And so there's always going to be uh, enemies lurking, trying to find places to attack, to mislead, and the churches were going to need uh, shepherds watching over them to keep them healthy. Okay, so this is what he is uh, trying to get across to these uh, these pastors in Ephesus. And so uh, Acts chapter twenty, verse number verse number eighteen. Uh, it says, "And when they were come to him, he said unto them." You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. He says, you know, that means that you have that you are familiar with it by experience, that you were able to see. Paul says, my life has been an open book. I have lived in the fishbowl. Okay, that's what he's saying. And you have seen my life. You have examined it. And he was constantly under the scrutiny of friend and foe. Okay, that's how Paul lived his life. And so he says, I was transparent with the way that I lived. You saw my struggles. You saw my uh, my trials that I went through. But you also heard the things that I have taught. And you realize, or we'll see here in a minute, you realize that I have practiced what I preached. Okay. And so he said, you have seen my manner of life. You've seen all of these things. And so his life was on display. In verse number 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And so he says, as I was serving the Lord, I was doing it with humility of mind. Okay. Paul was a humble servant. And he was an apostle. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. He was a right. But he was a humble servant. And so how does that line up with much of Christianity today? How does that line up with many of what is called pastors and leaders and elders and bishops? Do they come as humble servants? There is some who come as humble servants, but most will be there will be uh, something yeah. that motivates them to be, be leaders or pastors. Um, yeah, so you have that arrogance, you have that pride, you have that, hey, I am the man of God. Man of God yeah. Right? There, By the, there are folks who call themselves apostles today too. So. <laughs> yeah, there are. And so, even, okay, even the title I brought out there a minute ago, Man of God, that was usually given to an Old Testament prophet, right? Or the Lord's anointed, that was the king or the prophet in the Old Testament. That was never given to a pastor or a an elder, right? And so they'll, they'll use Old Testament references and say, you know, you can't lift your hand against the man of God. So it's not man of God. Hold on a second. You are a shepherd, yeah. right? So anyway... Um, Paul is saying, I have been an example to you, and no matter how godly a person is, they're still a sinner. No matter how 
closely a saint is walking with God, they still abide in this flesh. And there is still a struggle that they are going to be in. And so what Paul is telling them is you are going to have to constantly, and I didn't read down this far, but you're going to have to constantly be watching and fighting against and keeping yourself in check. And he says, I have lived as an example before you that I was serving you in humility. I wasn't ruling over you. I wasn't oppressing you. I wasn't enriching myself. I wasn't in power and authority over you. But instead, I was coming as a humble servant, expounding the word of God to you and giving my life for you. Right? And so as we look at that verse 19, I believe it was, he says, I was with you with humility of mind, many tears. That means that he wasn't just there cold and calculated uh, teaching the, the scriptures, but his heart was there as well. He cared about the people. He loved the people. He was shedding tears for the people as he saw them struggling as the devil was uh, waging war against them, as there were people who was rejecting God, people who were falling away from God. His heart was affected by them. He was shedding tears for them. He cared about them. Right? Going onward, it says, and temptations, that word temptations, that means trials, hardships that he faced by the lying in wait of the Jews. He says, I had plenty of enemies that wanted to see me fail and wanted to sink me. But I remained faithful because I was a servant of God and I was serving his flock. Right? Going on to verse 20. And how I kept nothing back that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Okay? Whenever it says I've kept nothing back that was profitable, the idea is I haven't withheld food from you. I'm here feeding the sheep and I haven't withheld anything that was profitable, anything that was good for you. I wasn't picking and choosing what I was going to preach based on how you would respond. I wasn't picking and choosing and just saying the things that was popular or the things that you would like. I wasn't tickling your ears. But instead, I wanted to see you grow, and that required me telling you the things that were difficult as well as the things that were good. Right? And we're going to get into the reasons why he's saying that here in a minute whenever he gets into warnings. But he says, I've kept nothing back, but have showed you and taught you. That's word and deed. To show, he says, I lived it in front of you. As he is uh, suffering, as he's being abused, as he's being mistreated, as he's being uh, slandered by the enemies. We, we, uh, we talked about how while he was in Ephesus that there were fightings and fears and trials and afflictions and he despaired even of life. He had a hardship in front of them. He was a human being. He had trouble. He had struggles. And so anyway... He says, I've showed you in the way that I've lived and also in the way that I've taught. I've practiced what I preach. Okay? And he says, publicly and from house to house. So there was no difference from the way that he lived on the public square whenever all eyes were on him or whenever he was privately meeting together and having dinner with someone in their houses. His words was the same wherever he went. His life was the same. He was consistent. He wasn't two-faced, right? He was consistent everywhere he went. And he says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. His message didn't change based on his audience. 
He says, I preached repentance toward God. You have to change your mind and how you're thinking about God. You need to repent, right? And have faith, believe in Christ as your Savior. That was his message. It was the gospel. Okay? God is the righteous judge. He is worthy of condemning us. We have all sinned and came short of the glory of God. But Christ has given his life to give us eternal life. So if we believe in him, we'll have everlasting life, right? And that was the message that he preached publicly, privately, from house to house, to Jews, to Gentiles, to anyone that would listen. He didn't change the message based on who was listening. He didn't come to the Jews and preach one message, the Gentiles another. He didn't come to the wealthy and say one thing and the poor and say another. He didn't come to the to the powerful and tame it down any. And he didn't come to the sinful and the wicked and the prisoners. And he didn't change the message for them either. It was the same no matter where he went. And so whenever we come down to verse 22, he starts telling them about what lies ahead of him. He is not ignorant of the fact that he is going to end up going and being arrested in Jerusalem. And so he tells them here in verse number 22, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that, the, that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither account I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is preparing these people because if Paul would leave and never say anything about this, about the sufferings, yes, they were aware of how he suffered whenever he was with them, but if he would have went to Jerusalem, been arrested, spent time in jail, ended up in Rome, and he hadn't prepared and told them ahead of time, what would it do to the Ephesian believers? You know, a few weeks from, from this time that he's there with them, they get word back and say, Paul went to Jerusalem and he has been arrested. He's imprisoned. It looks like he's going to die. Would that not flatten their faith? But Paul, being the good shepherd that he was, wanted to prepare his sheep so that whenever these things came, that they wouldn't be scattered, that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't struggle and fall away just because of what was coming to him. And so he tells them, uh, I have to do this. I'm bound in spirit. I have to go. Now, there are some people who have the idea that Paul made a misstep here. Whenever we get up into chapter number 21, there is a prophet that comes to him and says, don't go to Jerusalem, okay? And that the Holy Spirit forbade him from going to Jerusalem. But here's the thing with Paul. Paul was following the Lord all along. Even whenever he was going, um, going westward in through uh, Asia, he was carefully following the Holy Spirit. The uh, Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go north, wouldn't let him go south. He pushed west, he came to the sea, and then he got the Macedonian call. You remember that? He was always careful to follow the Lord's will, and the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, would forbid him to go certain places, right? The Lord didn't forbid him to go to Jerusalem, but instead he was bound in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. But all of those who were prophesying and who were telling and all the ones that were warning him were making it known to everyone as he went through what was getting ready to happen. And it gave Paul the opportunity to tell them, I am ready for this. God has prepared me for this. God is going to use this. From the very first time that Paul met the Lord, 
on the Damascus Road, the Lord told him, I have plans for you. You will suffer great things for my name, and you will be witness for me even in king's palaces. Right? And Paul says, this is part of God's plan. I am ready for it. And so whenever we look here in these verses that I just read, he says, bonds and afflictions abide me. I know that I'm going to be arrested. I know I'm going to be in prison. But he says, none of these things move me. They're not going to knock me off course. God has put this road before me. I believe it was, uh, it was Jesus that said, this is a, a loose translation, okay? But Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Lord has given me? Right? That God has given me, the Father has given me. And this is basically what Paul was saying. God has led me in this. He has forewarned me. He has showed me. I know what's going to happen, but I am ready for it because God has led me here. He's prepared me for it. He will lead me through it. And so don't lose faith whenever these things happen to me. Continue serving God because this is my lot that God has given me. Okay? And so none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. Now, whenever he's talking about suffering and arrest and imprisonment and possible death, he says, I want to finish well. I want to finish with joy. The book of Philippians is a book of joy, and he's in prison whenever he's writing that. Right? He does finish with joy because he knows that he is walking with God, that his steps were ordered by the Lord, that he's went in the way that God has led him, and there is great peace in that. And see, that's instructive for us as believers because if we will live for God, if we will allow him to order our steps, to guide us where he wants, it doesn't matter what storms come our way. It doesn't matter what hardships meet us. If God has brought us to that, we know he has ordained it. He will provide for us. He will take care of us, and he has a purpose for it. And so we can go through it knowing that we're relying on him and that God's got us. And that's basically what Paul is saying. God's led me here. I know this is God's will. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be what I would choose, but God chose it. He has a purpose. And so I'm going to go through it faithful to him with joy. He says in one place that uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, hey, it's going to be great to go to heaven, but as long as I'm living here, I'm going to represent Jesus. Okay? And so that's what he's doing. And so I don't count my life dear. Sometimes we hold on to our life or even our, our position and our quality of life so heavily that we're willing to sacrifice God's will and God's good things to keep this world's good things. And Paul says, I don't care. They can have it all as long as I'm following Jesus, as long as I have him. As the song says, take, take this world and give me Jesus, right? And so he says, I want to finish the course with joy. The ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, he says, God has given me this to do, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now everywhere that he goes, no matter uh, how important, how powerful, how mean the person is that he stands before, he shares the gospel with him. He says, I'm just going to keep doing what God's called me to do all the way until I see him face to face. And so in verse 25, And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Now this is going to be heartbreaking to these people. They love, they love Paul. And he says, this is the last time you're going to see me. I finished my work here, so even if I don't get killed, 
I'm not coming back. God's got other places for me to go, other things for me to do. You're not going to see my face again. And we find that they, they uh, verse 38, sorry most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more. They were sorrowful because of this, because of his love and his care that he'd had for them. Okay, so we come to verse number 26. He says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I have done my work here. I've done my job here. There's no blood on my hands because I have done what God has set out for me to do. And what a liberating thing, what a freeing thing that is, is saying, I know that God, I've done what God wants me to do, and so I am free from the blood of all men, right? So anyway, that brings us down to verse number 28. We, uh, we change gears here, if you will, okay? And verse number 28, and he has lifted himself as an example. He has showed them, this is how I've cared for you. This is what's getting ready to happen to me. I'm not going to be back here anymore. So now the ball's in your court, if you understand that expression. Now it's your responsibility. He's passing the baton. There's another sporting analogy. He's passing the baton to them. And so in verse 28, he says, I'm not coming to you again. I've told you everything. I've done my part. Now it's your turn. Uh, take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock of God, or all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Whenever he uses that term, take heed, watch out, pay attention, be mindful of this, okay? Of both yourself and the flock that you're overseeing. He says you have a responsibility. But whenever he says take heed, it means that if you are not watching out, if you're not careful, if you're not paying attention, there's going to be problems. That's why you watch out, right? If you ever taught someone how to drive or been taught how to drive, you've got to constantly be telling them, pay attention, watch out, look for this, look here, look there. Mind your blind spots, right? This is what Paul's telling them. You have a responsibility to these people. You are overseers of God's flock. And so you're going to have to be paying attention both to your own self, to your own spiritual health, as well as to the sheep. Okay? And he says it was the Holy Ghost that has made you overseers. It wasn't that that you wanted to be. It wasn't that, hey, you chose this profession, that uh, it chose you or whatever. But he says God has brought you to this, that it is a, a calling, not an occupation, okay? And so he says God has brought you to this place. He has given you a responsibility. But he makes sure and points out here that they are simply just overseers. They're not owners. Okay? He says you are pastors, you are bishops, you are elders, but you are overseers, you are under shepherds. The flock doesn't belong to you. The believers aren't your own, they belong to Christ who purchased them with his own blood. Okay? And so that brings extra weight to the responsibility, doesn't it? In the, the day that we live in, if something doesn't belong to you, most people treat it light, lightly, right? For instance, never buy a car that was once a rental. Okay? Do you know why? Because it's been driving for you. 
people do not take care of a rental. You rent a car to abuse a car. In the society, which that's how they look at it. Doesn't belong to me. How fast will it go? I think I can jump the curb. Let's go off-roading. All right? You know, 80 kilometer an hour down a, a ball rope. I'm not worried about the suspension. Beat the thing, right? That's the society which we live in. It doesn't belong to me, so who cares? If you've ever been a landlord, same thing. Doesn't belong to me, who cares? Let it fall apart. But that's not the way that it should be. We should be taking care of other people's things more carefully than what we would our own. We need to be good stewards over the things that belong to others. And so what Paul is impressing upon them, these sheep aren't yours to do with what you please. You are taking care of them for Christ. He is the one that owns them. He is the one that bought them. He is the one to which you give account. And I think it would be good for uh, many people within Christendom today to realize, many, many leaders, elders, pastors, whatnot, to realize that those to whom they are preaching and teaching, feeding and caring for, okay, don't belong to them. They belong to God. Right? It's not my flock. It's God's flock. He has entrusted me with a, the responsibility to take care of them, to feed and to lead, right? And that's a huge responsibility. Okay? And so that's what he is impressing upon these Ephesian elders. He's saying, these are God's sheep. You are entrusted with the care of them. Make sure you care for them well. Um, verse 29, for I know this. Okay, so we've got two warnings that's going to take place in 29 and 30. And I know I need to be wrapping this up, but in 29, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So there is a threat from without. This idea of grievous, it is burdensome, okay? This is the legalistic, this is the uh, the religious oppressive ones that would come in and try to uh, try to push them away from a relationship with God, from a walk with God, and try to uh, bring them under the bondage of a religious system. If you follow through church history, you find out this is the way that it went. You had the Gnostics, you had the uh, different ones that came in, bringing their beliefs, the Judaizers and ones, coming in and bringing grievous burdens upon the people to bind them down, to weigh them down, to destroy them, okay? And so that's the grievous wolves coming from without and putting a burden, a weight on them and destroying them with false doctrine, right? And then also of your own selves. He's pointing to the religious leaders that's sitting in front of him. He says, some of you guys are going to go astray. Remember, he kept nothing back that would be profitable, right? He said, um, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So he says, even amongst the pastors, amongst the elders, there are going to be those who forget that they answer to God, that the sheep belong to God, and instead they are going to try to uh, raise themselves up to prominence and power, try to accrue wealth off of God's sheep, they are going to use God's sheep, use his flock for their uh, for their building up, for their <coughs> enrichment, okay? 
And so rather than serving humbly, they are going to be using the flock to serve them. Okay? And Paul is warning. He says, some of you are going to get greedy. That's what he's saying. Some of you are going to think it's about you. Some of you are going to quit teaching the things that are difficult or divisive or harsh. You're going to start tickling ears so you can gain crowds, so that you can be the favorite, so that you can accrue wealth and power and prominence and position, and you are going to do a huge disservice to the flock, and you are not going to be doing what God has left you to do. So there is a, a risk from without, that there's going to be false teaching coming from without that's going to be burdensome and harsh and controlling, but there's also going to be a relaxing on doctrine from within just to build up a following. We see that today through televangelists and through a lot of these big mega church pastors and whatnot that have uh, basically cut the word of God all apart. They they take the, the good parts, they ignore the, the hard parts, and they just try to build up crowds, and they've become uh, worldwide names and whatnot. They've become rich because of it, and they think that those sheep are theirs in order to enrich them and to put them in prominence on the world stage. And Paul said, they're going to come from amongst you. They're going to do that. Okay? And they have. And so he said, they're going to come of yourselves. So in verse 31, he says, Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So he's using this term again, to watch, to take heed. He says, you're going to have to monitor yourself. You're going to have to monitor your motives. You're going to have to pay attention to the things that you're doing, the things that's affecting you, the things that have your heart, because you can be led astray. Even the pastors that was before him at the time. And so he says, watch. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter number 3, verses 17 through 21, I'm not going to turn there for a sake of time, but Paul, or Paul, yeah, that'd be something in Ezekiel, wouldn't it? God comes to Ezekiel and he says, I have appointed you to be the watchman on the wall. You are the lookout. You are the one that's on the tower looking for the enemy approaching. And it is your job to warn whatever the enemy is coming. And if you fall asleep on your post and the enemy comes and attacks, you're responsible. But if you see him coming and you warn and nobody listens, then you're not responsible. It's their fault. Okay? And so that's what's going on here is that Paul is appointing them. He says, you need to watch. You need to be on the lookout. You need to be paying attention because if you fall asleep, if you drop the ball, you are the one that is responsible, talking to the spiritual leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And we need to be careful about deceiving ourselves because we think that we're doing well. We think that, we've got, we think that we're stronger than what we are. The Bible says, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. And I think many of us fall into that category that we're like, hey, look at how I'm doing. We get maybe proud of our performance as Christians. And it's like, I don't do this and I don't do that anymore. I've been reading my Bible steadily for all these. I haven't missed a church service. I've been praying. I've been seeing these things done. Look at my life. It's going great. Look at me. And that's about the time you fall. And so he's saying, be paying attention, be watching, because the enemy goeth about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour even the pastors of the church in Ephesus. And so watch. And he says, I have 
warned you, I've spent three years over and over. And by the way, if it seems like sometimes that I'm saying the same things over and over again, if it seems like I'm preaching the same messages over and over again, it's because whenever we go through the Bible, we find out that repetition is found in Scripture, that we as human beings, we need to keep hearing the same things because either we don't listen or we forget. Right? And so Paul says, for three years I continued to pound these things into your heads, but I'm going to go away. Don't forget just because I'm not still here pounding them into your heads. Okay? And so then in verse 32, and I've, I've got to wrap this up. In verse 32, he says, Now, brethren, I commend you to God and the, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Simply put, he's saying, I've done my part. Now it's between you and God. God is able. God is, or Jesus is the chief shepherd, right? Jesus is able, his Holy Spirit is able to do all things. They don't have to have Paul to babysit them. He's going to pass off the scene, and he wants us to be bigger than him. So he says, now I'm leaving it to God, and whatever happens is between you and God. Okay? It comes to a point in time in our lives we have to realize we've came to the, we've done all that we can, and we've got to make sure that we are comfortable with taking our hands off of things and letting God be in charge. That can be the lives of our loved ones. That can be our children. That can be different things that we're praying about. And there comes a point in time where I've done what I can. I've done my part, and now it's between you and God, right? Even for me as a pastor, I can preach the Word. I can proclaim it every week. I can break down these passages and bring out these truths and everything. But at the end of the day, between you and God, I can't make you do anything. Okay, so last thing here. He says, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's getting into the matter of money here because that is a pitfall for religion all the way around the world, isn't it? He says, I've coveted no man's silver or gold. I'm not doing this for the money. He says, as a matter of fact, I have ministered to my own needs. I went out and I have worked and taken care of my needs as well as my ministry teams. And I have of my, my own wealth, I have given to those who were in need. I have ministered. And he says, the Lord himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why is he telling a group of pastors this? Look at religion today. You'll find out real quick. Okay. He says, I've coveted neither silver or gold. Make sure that you don't allow silver or gold to become your God and you start fleecing the sheep. Okay? And then as you are serving, make sure that you are serving not just with your word, not just with your life, but also with your finances. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so to wrap it all up, when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all and they wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, and they that excuse me that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him unto the ship. So he finished up all of his instructions. They wept, they prayed together, they led him to the ship. He got on the boat, he sailed away. That was the last time they saw him, and they went back to Ephesus and they continued on. Okay, and so that was Paul's final words to them, at least face to face. His encouragement, pastors, take care of God's sheep. 
make sure they are being fed, make sure you're leading them in the right way, and make sure you are uh, paying attention to your own lives that you don't get sidetracked before you realize it and go astray yourself. Okay. So does anyone have any questions or comments on what we looked at this morning? Nothing at all? I guess I've said it all. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll we'll take a break and rest our ears and our mouths for a minute. And we'll get back into the Word of God. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much for your Word, Lord. We thank you for the simplicity of it, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the transparency of it, Lord, that uh, as Paul has wrote all these things and warning of these pitfalls and these dangers, Lord, I pray that we would take them uh, take them to heart, Lord. I pray that we would uh, watch and monitor ourselves and uh, make sure that we are staying on track, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would just give give us wisdom and discernment as we live and we serve, Lord. And we just thank you for being so good. We thank you for loving, loving us, Lord. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.